Well, this morning we close out Matthew 18, uh, looking at the subject of forgiveness. Uh, and you can find that on page number 979 of the Pew Bibles. And we'll be looking at what I imagine is a relatively familiar story uh, for, for most of us. It's uh, the story or the parable of the unmerciful servant. And that is verses uh, 21 through 35. don't hear any pages leafing, so hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for these parables. We're thankful for Christ. And so, God, we need your spirit. We need you to come and to help us understand this story. Help us to understand it in the context of Matthew 18 and in the context of Emmanuel Church in 2023. That we may know you, that we may forgive each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, Jesus is going to help us understand how it's possible to have a community where we uphold the holiness that God calls us to, and where everyone is welcome, no matter what they've done. The temptation is always to fall off on one side or the other, so if we overemphasize the holiness of God, well people begin to feel like, well, no one can measure up. 
Or they think they can, which is maybe even worse. But if we overemphasize the fact that this is a place where everyone is welcome no matter what they've done, then there's no standard and it can sort of become as if God has no opinion about how his people ought to live their lives. It can start to feel like we're trying to have a baseball team where no one knows how to play baseball. How frustrating is it when everyone's sitting there hoping the ball doesn't get hit to the shortstop? But the way God resolves this tension is through forgiveness. There is a standard, and everyone is welcome. Because God forgives sinners for their failure to meet his standard, and he forgives them over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus died because God will not compromise his standard for holiness, and because God is merciful to sinners. He dealt with Christ how we deserve to be dealt with. The entire chapter of Matthew 18 is about how we, as God's people, live in community together while upholding his standard for holiness in the lives of his people and the fact that everyone is welcome no matter what they've done. And it's nice to say that we're a place where everyone is welcome no matter what they've done, but we all know how easy it is to start enforcing a standard to keep certain people out. Because if we're honest, we all sort of want to play on a baseball team where everybody knows how to play baseball. It's frustrating when the outfielder drops the ball. There are a lot, there are, things are a lot nicer the more closely everyone lives up to God's standard. It gets really messy when we start letting people in, no matter what they've done. And so our temptation, and Jesus knows this, that's why he's about to tell us this story, our temptation is always to exclude people who don't measure up to the standard, or who we perceive to not measure up. And so this morning, Jesus is going to help us see that forgiveness is also the way we too can uphold God's standard, both by understanding the forgiveness that God has given us, and then through that moving us to extend that same kind of forgiveness to everyone who calls Jesus their Lord and King. So the first thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider the situation at hand. And, and what I mean by this is we're going to see that Jesus is teaching about forgiveness in a very specific situation, and we're going to clarify that specific situation. Next, we'll see an illustration of that situation where we'll unpack the story, and then finally the application of that situation. And so first, the situation at hand. So even though this passage is on the subject of forgiveness, it's not, ask, it's not tackling every possible consideration about the subject of forgiveness. We're dealing with a specific kind of forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to extend to a specific kind of person in a specific situation. So what is that situation? Listen to Peter's question. He says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Notice, Peter's question is narrow. 
He's not asking if or how often he should forgive anyone who sins against him. He's asking how much and how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me. This is because, as we saw last week, or the last three weeks, this whole chapter in the book of Matthew is about the church. How can the church be a place where we take seriously our call, as Jesus' followers, to be holy as God is holy, and the fact that the church is full of sinners who keep on sinning, all at the same time? And the answer to that question is the radical forgiveness of God. Because God will forgive and receive anyone who repents of his sin and puts his trust in Jesus. So we too must forgive and receive anyone who repents of his sin and puts his trust in Jesus. God keeps his perfect standard because we must agree with his law. We must acknowledge our failure. We must turn from God, or sorry, turn from our sin to God for his mercy and forgiveness, with a desire to keep his commandments. That's what repentance is. But his mercy and forgiveness never end. So no no matter how far we fall, no matter how often we fall, no matter what we've done, he's promised that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But this creates a little bit of a problem for a community. What if another Christian keeps sinning against me in the same way over and over again? Do I have to keep forgiving him? What if what he's done is so terrible that it can never be undone? What if I have legitimate concerns about his sincerity? Is Jesus really calling us to give another sinner a blank check to sin against us as much and as often as he would like. And all he has to do is repent. Don't they eventually have to learn to play baseball to stay on the team? This is why the rabbis of this time said that God's people were required to forgive up to three times. Because you can't keep going over a bridge that you're burning down. Eventually, that bridge is going to be gone. And so the rabbi said, hey, look, three times, that's good. And so Peter, who understands the implications of what Jesus is saying, he wants to know, at what point do I need to lay down the law? At what point do we make them pay the price for what they've done? And so probably thinking of himself as being incredibly generous, he more than doubles what the rabbis we're teaching. And he says this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You see, Jesus wants Peter and us to know that there must be no end to the forgiveness we offer. Because there's no end to the forgiveness that God offers. The idea here is clear. Jesus does not want us keeping count. But at the same time, let's not forget everything we've talked about so far. Jesus is not talking about whether or not we should forgive a sheep who is still astray. 
He's not talking about whether or not we should forgive someone who claims to be a Christian, but who will not turn and put their trust in Jesus like a child. He's already told us what to do with them. If it's a sheep who's still astray, we look for them. If they turn to Jesus, we receive them. If they're not turning to Jesus, we go and tell them their fault. We bring two or three others along. We even tell it to the church so the chorus of all of our voices will amplify the voice of the Holy Spirit inside their heart with the hope that they will turn and then we can forgive them. But what Peter expects to happen is that when we do that, that he will listen. One commentator put it this way, he says, while contemporary readers are prone to ask what happens if the procedure of church discipline does not work, Peter asks, what happens if it does? Who wouldn't gladly accept the offer to be restored to their community if essentially all he has to do is say, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again? That's what Peter's afraid of. So that's the situation. Next, Jesus gives us an illustration of that situation. So this story, as I mentioned earlier, is probably very familiar to you. This is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Broadly, this is a story where a king settles accounts with his subjects. Uh, There's one particular subject who owes him 10,000 talents. He doesn't have it. Uh, The king threatens to throw him in jail. He pleads for mercy. The king forgives his debt, and yet that same man won't go and, and show that same mercy Uh, to his fellow servant, okay? So Jesus begins, he says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So in Jesus's story, uh, this servant owes 10,000 talents. And a talent was the largest unit of money at the time and it was worth 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was a day's wage for the average worker. And so 6,000 denarii was 20 years worth of wages for the average worker. Which means this man owed his king 200,000 years worth of wages. Which makes you wonder, is it even possible for someone to be in that kind of a debt uh, to his king? And there's actually one scenario where it's possible, and that would be if this servant was the one charged with collecting taxes from the various provinces. Um, in Jesus' province of Palestine, the yearly taxes there were 8,000 8, talents. And so likely that's the scenario here. So the servant, he was supposed to be delivering the taxes to the king's treasury, which does kind of make you wonder, like, what, what happened to all that money? And this, Jesus doesn't tell us, which means it's not the main point of the story. Um, but, but you do kind of wonder, right? So eventually the king decides to settle his accounts. The man doesn't have the money. And if he doesn't have that kind of money, there's no way he's ever going to have that kind of money. And so the king uh, says, okay, throw him and his whole family uh, into jail until they pay back the debt. Well, of course, they, they can't pay it back. Uh, So likely the king is going to recover whatever he can by selling him and his whole family and then leave him in prison for the rest of his life as punishment. And some might wonder, like, why why the wife and children? Like, that seems a bit harsh. Uh, But we have to remember that at this time, this man's wife and children were his property. 
So this would be like a debt collector now coming and selling your car and your house. It's, it's, it's every bit the same to them as that would be to us now, okay? So Jesus goes on. It says, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So this is utterly astounding. This would be like $15 billion in debt. I can't even think about how much money that is, let alone imagine owing that kind of debt and someone forgiving me of it. And our translation says that he fell on his knees. And I've pointed this word out before. This is the same word that gets used when people come and fall down on their knees before Jesus. And we've said, like, sometimes that gets translated worship, like it did with the, um, uh, the, the Magi. Uh, other times it gets translated as just fall on your knees. And so it's, it's not likely this man is worshiping the king, but, but it kind of gives you the picture that maybe he's lying prostrate on, on the ground, face into the ground, and, he, and he's imploring him, we're told. And the, and the verb for this word imploring, I'm going to get a little nerdy here, it's a present tense continuous verb, which means it has a repeated action. So the idea here is not only that this man is lying down, totally humbling himself, totally embarrassing himself, but he just keeps on pleading with the king. Okay? Now, we don't know if he's sincere, but the king is so kind and so merciful that at the slightest evidence of repentance, he's willing to forgive this entire debt. And there is some reason to doubt this man's sincerity, especially because he's saying crazy things, like he's going to pay back everything he owes, which we all know is not true. There's no way he can pay back 200,000 years worth of wages. So he's either a liar or he's a fool who's totally oblivious to the reality of his situation. But this is important, right? Because to some degree, we're all like this when it comes to our debt before God. We all feel like we should or can pay him back. And God wants us to know you, you can't. You are totally dependent on my mercy and my grace. And then we're told, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So pity, that word is mercy, it's, it's compassion. He forgives him the entire debt. He releases him way more than he asked for, way more than he deserves, especially if we start to speculate about how he lost that money. I mean, there could be something shady on that end as well. Okay, Jesus goes on. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So remember, a denarii is a day's wage. So a hundred denarii, that's no small amount. That's, that's a third of a year. That's twenty to $30,000 in, in our time for the average worker. And so right after this man's life has literally been given back to him, he goes out and he chokes, right? That's not insignificant there, right? There's something violent and just evil about the way he even approaches the man. He chokes a fellow servant, demanding his money back. And even though that servant pleads with him and basically says the same thing that he just said to the king, 
He refuses to even be kind and patient with him as he pays it back. No, he just throws him in prison. And if he really wanted to be paid back, he's not going to put him in prison to earn a prisoner's salary. This is, this is just being petty. It's like he wants him to suffer. And then we're told, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And the reality is, is if our hearts are not transformed by God's grace, it's our fellow servants who will begin to notice that and pick up on it. And then Jesus closes the story. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so this is that same idea that Jesus has taught us already back in Matthew 5 and then Matthew 6, right? When in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed is the merciful, for they shall be given mercy, right? If you forgive others, God will forgive you. And when Jesus is saying that, he doesn't mean that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. He means exactly what he's teaching in this story, which is if we realize how much God has forgiven us, the, the knee-jerk response to that is to be able and to desire to extend that same kind of mercy to others. And the word translated jailers here, this is a word that literally means someone who inflicts torture. It could be translated torturers. The king is so shocked with this man's lack of mercy that he cancels his forgiveness and puts him in jail to be tortured until he pays him back, which will never happen in his lifetime in an allusion uh, to eternal punishment. So, what is the application for us? First of all, let's remember that Jesus is not talking about what to do with the unbeliever at work who keeps lying about you. He's not talking about the drunk driver who, who kills a friend or a family member. The Bible does have something to say about those situations. For example, we are to love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We are not to take revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Even Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, asks God to forgive the people who, are putting him, who put him there. So we should want God to forgive those who hurt us. At the same time, we are to seek justice. We are to care for the powerless. Uh, we should be a society that judges righteously uh, a drunk driver who, who kills someone. But all of that, I realized, would be a totally different sermon. Because today we're dealing with Jesus' command that there should be no cap on how often we forgive a fellow Christian who sins against us. Uh, this is the way Jesus puts it in Luke 17. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Whew. But this is really the same idea from Matthew 18. If he sins, rebuke him. Or to use Jesus' language from Matthew 18, go and tell him his fault. If he repents, forgive him. And notice, we extend forgiveness to him after he repents. 
after he turns again to Jesus and puts his trust in him like a child, after we tell him his fault and he listens. But if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't turn, if he doesn't listen, Jesus is not calling us to extend forgiveness to him yet. If that's the case, Jesus wants us looking for him or even eventually considering him an unbeliever. We still love him. We still pray for him. We still want to see him trusting Jesus like a child, like we would any unbeliever. And while we're waiting for him to repent, we cannot let bitterness take over our heart. We still turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love our enemy and pray for him. But the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about here requires repentance. Because until there's repentance, the relationship cannot be restored. And it requires real repentance, or at least the slightest evidence of it, as we see in our story. And if there's real repentance, there will be evidence. We will plead with someone to have patience. There will be humility. There will be sorrow. There will be a resolve to live as God is calling us to live, even if we continue to fail. There will be a growing willingness to cut off and gouge out from our life whatever it takes. If we truly repent, even if it's seven times in a day, which is just Jesus' way of saying, you're probably not ever going to be sure that it's sincere. We are to forgive. We can't let the fact that we think he'll probably do it again keep us from forgiving from the heart. And to be honest, all of this will be very difficult to sort out. It will require wisdom. It will require love. It will require patience. If he's still living with his mistress, there's a good chance he's not sincere. But if he's struggling with drugs and alcohol, golly, it's going to be a lot harder to tell. But if there's the slightest evidence of repentance, like the king here, we should have pity and be merciful and forgive because God forgives all of our half-hearted repentance too. And isn't that wonderful? This also doesn't mean there are no consequences. We can forgive and receive someone back into the church as a brother or sister in Christ without giving them all the trust and privileges and benefits of a deep personal friendship that we may have had before. Remember, in the story, the, uh, the fellow servant, he says to the servant who was forgiven, he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you back. And what the master is concerned about is that, is that that servant had no mercy whatsoever. And so as I thought about it, well, it, you can imagine a scenario where that servant says, or realizes to himself, no, it's actually good for this fellow servant to pay me back. But I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to allow him to pay me back. And that would have been showing mercy. We also must protect the vulnerable. We can't be naive about people who have abused other people, but we can forgive and welcome them back into fellowship as a brother or sister in Christ. 
We can forgive from the heart while still being wise and careful. Because the point of this passage is that we must be ready and willing to radically forgive if a fellow believer repents. Listen to how Jesus closes the passage. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So Jesus is calling us to real and true forgiveness from the heart. If we are not able to forgive others as God has forgiven us, Jesus is saying that is evidence that we, like the unmerciful servant here, may not actually have repented truly ourselves. And that we've completely missed what it means to be a forgiven sinner. And that's the point of the story. Yes, it will be difficult to forgive someone 77 times. It will be difficult to forgive someone if he sins against you seven times in a day and then repents seven times. But friends, when we understand or even begin to understand how much God has forgiven us, then we are free to extend this radical forgiveness to anyone. There's something about recognizing how much God has forgiven us that not only makes us merciful towards others, but it fuels our patience and our wisdom and our love and how to deal with the complicated scenarios that this principle is going to bring into our lives. So that we can forgive someone again and again and again if that's what it takes. Not only have we rebelled against his will ourselves, but we've ignored him. We've preferred this world and creation to him. We don't thank or praise him as we should. That's why we have a, a confession of faith every Sunday morning, because this is true of all of us. The first commandment is to have no other gods before us, and all of us, all of us, have so many things, good things, that are more important in our lives than God. And yet he forgives us and welcomes us back into his presence over and over again because we are his child, because he loves us. And when we understand more of our own sin, and when we look back in our past, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but I've had these moments in my life where all of a sudden I looked back at, my, at you know, earlier manifestations of Patrick in my life, and, and there was sin in my life that I didn't even know was sin. I wasn't even aware of it. And, I th and God was overlooking it. And he was just being patient with me. And it's just, it's amazing to think about that. Because that's probably still true right now. We weren't even asking for forgiveness for those things. And yet he was blessing us all along. And when we see that, we can't help but love our Savior. This also means if we're here today and we're struggling to forgive someone, our impulse can be like, okay, well, I need a, I need a, and by I mean struggling to forgive someone, I mean struggling to forgive someone who, who is, wants to be restored. But, but we're worried about them being sincere. We're worried about them doing it again. We're worried about all these things. And what Jesus is saying is to, is to lift our eyes from all of that. 
onto Christ on the cross. And all that he's done for us. To, to search his law, not to feel condemned, but to know how deep the debt was that Jesus paid. And that's how we are free from the consternation about how to forgive that person from the heart. I want to close with this. Last week I mentioned a passage from 1 Corinthians 5 where a man uh, was committing adultery with his stepmother. And Paul, Paul said, and I had the verse on the screen last week, Paul said uh, to hand that man over to Satan uh, for the destruction of the flesh so that in the day of the Lord his soul might be saved. Well, what's interesting is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we have evidence that this man was restored. And this is what Paul says to them there. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, which would be excluding him from the community, right, handing him over to Satan, uh, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to affirm your love for him. And I imagine if his dad went to that church, how incredibly difficult that would be. So this will be hard. But if our eyes are focused on all that we have been forgiven, right? Rather than all somebody else needs to be forgiven by. If we let God's law do its work in our lives, we will be so dependent and so grateful for God's mercy that we will be able to extend that mercy to those who are longing to be welcomed back. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again this morning and we're grateful. We're grateful to know from your word that our biggest problem in this life is the debt that we owe you and that you and your grace and mercy have done what we could never do, which was pay the penalty for that debt, forgive us for it, and then welcome us into your family as children Father, we're so thankful for your grace and mercy. Help us always to remember that we are um, beggars <laughs> and that everyone else who wants a crumb from your table is someone we should fight to make sure can have it too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.